Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Stop, and I say go, 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 listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank the Beatles for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a Raw Bone podcast. Uh, before we get rolling, follow me on Twitter. Just put in the name, search the name John McAdam, and it's obvious who, who it is due to the avatar. You also, if you haven't already, want to be part of our Facebook group, results, wrestling results, wrestling conversation, wrestling pictures. And we talked a little bit about the college football playoff expanding, which I hate. Anyway, one other thing, too. I want to thank our previous guest, the king of recovery, Jim Valley. Last week, I had kind of a nightmare situation where seconds before Lou patches me in, I hear a landscaping truck pull up and I'm like, gee, I hope they're not too noisy. And it was just incredible how loud these dudes were. They were like, uh, had, you know, this engine going like, it was like 300 feet away. I had the windows closed and I was still in a closet with the door closed, trying to make it quiet and podcasting away with Jim Valley. So Jim really stepped up when I was not in a position to, be at my best and everyone is raving about the show it was great so thank you jim thank you lou for the great job you did editing it and getting all of that racket out so last week we had the king of recovery as a guest this week we have the king of baltimore returning to stick to wrestling let's keep the beatles theme going john if i fell how are you sir i'm doing good john how are you today? I am doing fantastic. Thank you for for coming on once again. It was a great show last time you were here. Oh, thank you so much for having me back. And I look forward to, uh, you know, what you picked for us to talk about today. Talk today, tonight, whatever. <laughs> Whenever you are listening, that's when it is. <laughs> 40 years ago to this week that the podcast is coming out, Pro Wrestling had a pretty wild weekend, and uh, we're going to talk about the first date, Saturday, June 20th, 1981, at the Philadelphia Spectrum. We're going to talk about this show. It opens up with Kurt Henning, who had just started his career wrestling Johnny Rods to a time limit draw. Any thoughts, John? I'm guessing Henning, I guess, had started, what, in January of 80? That far back, wow. Yeah, I think Rods was basic, probably just teaching him, teaching him how to work. And, mm-hmm. you know, because Johnny Rods had been around forever at that point. But, yeah, you know, opening the show, uh, 10 minute was a 10 or 15 minute time limit draw, kind of like what the, you know, they did the Crockett Territory. A lot of those house shows would open up with a draw where somebody's learning how to work. So it's pretty neat to see Henning that early in his career, you know, and how he would change over time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Hey, where where did he start in January 1980? Do you know the promotion? No, you know what? I was looking at it earlier, and I just saw that it started. Maybe he had started in Minneapolis and then came into the WWF. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, because he probably started with his dad and then came down this way to work, which is kind of odd. You would think that he would stay in the AWA to learn, but maybe Byrne had something going with Vince Sr. to have Henning come down here and work. 
I mean, he must have because, you know, I mean, obviously Vern's going to be looking out for Larry's kid and he came out here and, you know, on the road every night getting experience and Johnny Rods was supposed to be an outstanding teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, again, I'm looking here. All it says is that he de- debuted in 1980 and won multiple championships in both the Pacific Northwest and the AWA. So I guess that's where he had started and came down to the WWWF. Yeah, and he's, you know, right. This is his place on the card. You know, Johnny Rods had been here for a long time. I want to say he'd been here since 1968. And he'd been, you know, in and out, but mostly in. And he was a guy who rarely won on television, like maybe one win on TV the uh, per year. His matches were always competitive, but he was kind of a, a jobber to the stars type. And that's where Kurt is now. Yeah, when we get into this card, you'll I've got a little like a tidbit that ties Henning into something else that happens in this card in the spectrum. So that's a little bit down the card. So all right, looking forward to that next match: Larry Sharp against uh, defeats Tony Altimore. Larry Sharp, another guy who was a trainer. Me and some of my friends had breakfast with him in New Jersey once, and Larry tried to sneak away and have us pay the bill, pay his bill. <laughs> but I, I love dash. Larry, great guy. Uh, against Tony dash. Altimore, who I don't know how much of Tony Altimore you, you've seen, John, uh, over the years. By 1981, he had no business being in a ring. He looked like a, a 55, maybe even a 60-year-old man, and he was fat. Apparently, he had won a, an award in the Observer for, like, worst wrestler in 1980 or something like that. But is he the same Tony Altimore who was with Albano and the Sicilians? Yes, he was, and he was a referee and, I believe, a road agent at this time. But I had no idea he was voted worst wrestler in 1980, <laughs> and frankly, it's a, it's a pretty good choice. Uh, yeah. I kind of tried to look him up and it's like th- this guy was just even when he was in his prime with, you know, Albano, it was like, good Lord, he had a face for radio. Definitely that. <laughs> yeah. So by I me, mean, I don't know if he was a, a substitute for you know, a guy who no showed or a guy who got hurt. But even if he was there, there had to be a, a better choice locally. Strong Kobayashi <sighs> defeats Baron Mikel Cicluna. I have very little recollection of Kobayashi in the WWF at this time. Uh, He came in or he came back in like 77, 78 in kind of a mid-card role. Baron Mikkel Cicluna, once again, he had been around here forever since like the late 60s. I know he was homesteading. He lived in New Jersey. Uh, Any thoughts on, on the Baron? Well, you know, I tried looking this up. It looked like Kobayashi had ended up retiring in 1981. and. Mikhail had to retired in 1983 after 30 years. I don't remember much of him, but again, I was kind of like going through YouTube trying to find things. Wasn't exactly the best wrestler on the planet, but, you know, I mean, he was one of those guys that seemed to just hang around the WWWF, you know, like one of uh, maybe a trusted hand by Vince McMahon that, you know, hung around with the Raws and, you know, later Rene Goulet and SD Jones and things like that. But, yeah, I mean, it, you got to figure what in '81 he had already been wrestling for 28 years. So, yeah, and, and he uh, was he was at least 50. Yeah, and Kobayashi had actually started wrestling in '67, so he was like 13 or 14 years into his wrestling career when he wrestled this match. 
Yeah, Baron, especially in the end, in, in 82, 83, he started wearing a singlet, and it was obvious. It was like, you know, this guy, is <laughs> he's too old to be a professional wrestler. I'm sorry. <laughs> the singlet's holding everything in. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a theory at least. <laughs> Angelo Mosca defeats Tony Gurria. This is a very typical WWF thing, especially in, like, Philly and Boston, where you would have a guy like Mosca come in, and wrestle for the first time in that arena against a guy like Tony Gurria, a guy like Steve Travis, Rick McGraw, who, you know, he, it's kind of like winning on TV, and then it sets up the next month to wrestle Bob Backlund as the challenger. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Gurria had just held the belts with Martell in March when they lost into the Moondogs, and here he is doing a job to Angelo Mosca in June, and then... I believe in July they would win the belts back from the Moondogs. So I guess Gurria, again, is like one of those hired hands. You know, he had so much success in the tag team ranks that he would basically just, I guess, put guys over, like you said, to prepare them for the next move up to wrestle maybe for a championship or higher in the card. Yeah, that was kind of his role at this point. He had returned to the WWF in late 1976 and had pretty much been with the promotion the entire time except for he he left like mid-79 and came back like mid-1980. Korea did? Where did Korea go when he left in 79, do you know? I know he was in the Carolinas for a while. Other than that, I don't know. He might have he might have gone home to New Zealand for a while. Yeah, he's one of those guys that when you hear his name, you only think of the WWF. Yeah. I mean he was he was a mainstay out here. And you you mentioned Gurria and Martel would soon regain the tag team titles. And that was unprecedented against the Moondogs. Everyone knew that Rick Martell was the star of that team. It was like, you know, Rick was younger than Tony, but we, we knew who was carrying things. Oh yeah. He was charismatic. Like you said, he was young. He was good looking. He could fly, you know, and everything. It, it, I, I wasn't really into wrestling that much around this time, but I actually remember Martell and Gurria. I guess maybe I'd seen them do a, like a TV match or some, something, but I do remember them, and Martel stuck out back then to me as well when I was only like seven. Okay. Yeah, we would watch Korea and Martel, and it was the same match every week on TV against like a Johnny Rods and a Jose Estrada where the heels would have Korea in trouble the entire match, and then there would be the hot tag to Rick Martel. And we didn't know what a hot tag was, but we knew like Aria was the guy that got beat up and Martel was the, the, like I said, the star of the team. Speaking of the Facebook group, you know, someone asked a question, you know, had Rick Martel remained or, or come back to the WWF at the end of Bob Backlund's career? Like, would he have been a good WWF champion? John, before you weigh in on that, uh, I'm my answer was yes, but. Only if the WWF wasn't going national and they were going national. But if they had stayed using that same formula, yes, I think Rick Martel would have been a good WWF champion, especially, you know, towards the end of 1983, Bob Backlund had become very stale. Yeah, he would have been able to, you know, to come in as the the thing is, is you would have to get the belt to him. You know, you wouldn't turn him heel, but he would have the marquee looks and he had the you know, the flamboyance and the charisma and, you know, he could have stepped right in. I don't know if he could have carried it 
you know, onto a national level, maybe because of, you know, a bit of an accent and things like that. But yeah, he could have slid right in after Backlund if you were still looking for that kind of, you know, baby face type of champion with a clean image. No, that that makes total sense. I, I agree with you as a, a national promotion. That's not the guy you want to go with. But when Rick Martel won the AWA title in 1984 and he kept it for a while, I totally bought him as a world heavyweight champion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he was a, a change from, you know, I mean, it, you had Bachwinkle, of course, who was incredible. And then what was it? Otto, Otto Vons or Otto Vons who won the belt. And then, you know, Gria came along and he had a couple really good matches with Flair, too. I think they had one. 60-minute draw in Japan, that was a pretty good match as well. So Martel could work. You know, he was a good worker. And then, you know, for him, they, what, he lost to Stan Hansen in, what, 85, I believe? Yes, he did. That was uh, one of my my greatest misses. My friends wanted to go to that show in the New Jersey Meadowlands, and I was like, no, no, I have to go to Montreal for New Year's the next day. And (laughs) I come back, and I find out that Martel, I could have witnessed the AWA World's Heavyweight Championship changing hands. You know, you had mentioned uh, Martel and Gurria with Gurria selling and giving the hot tag to Martel. It made me think of the way it was in the Carolinas with George Becker and Johnny Weaver. You know, Becker was the old, you know, established wrestler and Weaver was just coming up and Becker would be in that spot. He would sell, 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 give the hot tag to the young kid. He would come in clean house and they would win. So, you know, it's almost like a, a thing that they would do with wrestlers who were winding down their career if they were tag team and i guess kind of like they would do with mr wrestling 2 and magnum ta down the road uh, mr wrestling 2 and magnum ta i believe is the greatest story that has ever been told in wrestling when peacock finally gets the mid-south stuff uh, up and running i cannot recommend anything more than starting to watch mid-south wrestling if you've never seen it like november 83 ish when jim Cornette comes in and then they start doing the uh, the Magnum TA with Mr. Wrestling 2 as his mentor angles. It was, like I said, the greatest story wrestling has ever told, in my opinion. I haven't seen much of this. I mean, I've gone back and tried to watch some of the stuff with uh, the Midnights against the two of them. But it isn't, you know, when you think about it, you're like, when you think of Magnum the way he looked in the NWA in 86, 87, you're thinking, man, with Mr. Wrestling 2. But then when you see it together, you're like, oh, this does work. It did work, and Magnum, you know, when they started teaming the two of them, Magnum was not yet a star. He was kind of an underneath oh. guy in Florida. Then they brought yeah. brought him into Mid-South. They gave him a little bit of a push, but it was like, you know, this guy doesn't stand a chance against a guy like Butch Reed. And then they put yeah. him with Mr. Wrestling 2, and they get him over as a star that was partially created by Mr. Wrestling 2. But then Mr. Wrestling 2 gets jealous of the star he created. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, he did a really good job of pushing Magnum in. You know, of course, Magnum then going over to the Crockett to be with Dusty. I mean, it's kind of crazy how you would think his career could have really taken off had the accident not happened. I mean, he could have. I always thought about Magnum. Whenever I saw his promos, I always thought he would make a good heel because he was so intense in those interviews. And sometimes it was almost like he was talking more of an angry heel like than he was as a baby face. But I mean, he said that they were talking about him having a run with the title and beating Flair and everything. So it would have been interesting. You know, he could have taken the place of, say, Sting and Luger and things like that. And who knows what he could have done in the, you know, the Attitude Era. 
Yeah, Magnum, I mean, in my opinion, towards the end of his career, and it was a really sad time, he kept doing the same interview over and over for like, you know, six, seven, eight months regarding Nikita Koloff, just like yelling, yeah. and, you know, looking in the camera and yelling. And I'm like, Magnum, you know, even back then I knew, you know, you got to learn when to turn it up and then you got to learn when to turn it down. And this guy didn't know when to turn it down. And I'm yeah. surprised no one told him. No, you would think Dusty would say, hey, look, you know, you got to peaks and valleys. You, like you said, you got to go high, you got to go low. But yeah, angry. He was just angry all the time. There is no question in my mind, and I've, I've mentioned this on the show before, that had Magnum not had the accident, at some point he would have turned heel on Dusty Rhodes for oh, no God. other reason than every single one of Dusty's sidekicks eventually turned heel on him except for Nikita because Nikita left. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well Dusty always had to be the, you know, the the rising the Phoenix rising out of the ashes of someone who attacked him. You know, he always had to be, you know, the cowboy that came back. But absolutely. I mean he probably would have beat Flair and then been the good guy and then turned something to where he would have a, you know, a program with Dusty. And and uh, maybe Dusty would have put him over. I mean, Dusty, even at that point, you know, he he took the title from Luger, the U.S. title at Starcade '87, you know, and then of course Barry, you know what I mean. But it was you're right, you know, Barry turned against him, uh, Ronnie Garvin turned against him, anybody came up that would turn against him. Oh, I mean, Ernie Ladd was his best friend in like '77, and Ernie Ladd turned on him. Ron Bass, he and Ron Bass owned a ranch together. Bass turned on him. <laughs> I don't know who I'm, I'm forgetting. I know I'm forgetting well, the, a bunch. The big Ole turn in 80. Oh, yeah. that's right. Mm-hmm. Now, they were yeah. never sidekicks, but I mean, nah, <laughs> that was a great turn. Yeah, I, I, I'd love to have been there for that. Everybody talks about how exciting that was, that, that turn Ole had on Dusty in, what, in 1980. Yes. I forget who was talking about it on this show, and I apologize for that. But I, someone who was a guest on the show was actually there, and oh, wow. he and he said for me, he's like, "Wait a minute, it, it's Dusty in the cage with the Andersons against you know Ivan Koloff and and whoever it was, and they, they just kind of sensed, they kind of smelled a rat, and it, it did actually happen." Was that the WFIA convention? Yes, it was. was. That yeah, I mean, it's like when Dusty went in to help Flair against the Russians in, what was that, 85? Yes, it was. You kind of knew when, when Flair was pointing at him that, uh-oh, they're going to take him down, you know, and they'd break his leg and, and everything. And that was a thing for Dusty, and that was that was pretty big for his book at one point. Bring him down, break something on his body, and then he'd come back to beat everybody. Yeah, the comeback for the big match is Starcade 85. Next, we have kind of a weird match, Sergeant Slaughter. Again, it defeats Rick McGraw. I say it's kind of strange because the the month before they had the first uh, at the Spectrum Sergeant Slaughter versus Pat Patterson match. That was the hot feud of 1981, and it went to a double disqualification. And now you're coming back with Slaughter against McGraw. I don't know where Pat Patterson was or why this happened. Well, the alley fight had happened before that as well, right? With uh, Patterson at the at Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Yeah. And you would figure it, that was a, a month or so before with Patterson. And then in September, he would go to Crockett. 
So it was probably like, okay, you know, you just had this extremely hot program with Patterson. You're leaving the territory. Let's, you know, finish out some dates or something. Because basically this is June, July, August, three months he'd be, you know, in Crockett's territory and then turn around and have that incredible program in two years with Cronoodle and Steamboat and Youngblood. Yeah, and they they had so they had Slaughter versus Patterson the month before, and then they had the Alley fight the next show on August first, nineteen eighty one. And by then, Slaughter was I don't think he was even on TV anymore. He's pretty much done here. Yeah, I mean that was that was a pretty big deal. I mean that that Alley fight was incredible, and you know he was just okay. You're done with your run. You know basically what the WWE. F had always done your heels had your big program and all of a sudden, okay, you're done with this guy. You're going to leave the territory and maybe come back later and, you know, wrestle like they would do with uh, Bruno, the three and gone. And yeah, I, I've mentioned this before. I was lucky enough to basically have seen the Madison square garden version of the alley fight live at Worcester, uh, wherever the Worcester Holy cross stadium. And it was like something, it was like an out-of-body experience. I had never seen anything like in like that in wrestling before. The guys were covered in blood. They both left in ambulances. It was great. Oh, my God. I mean, it's like, it's not, I don't know. I just, I'm not one of those ones that always talks about bad about today's wrestling, but you just miss that because there was a, there was a believability to it. There was passion. There was just fire. And when the crowd's into it, it makes all the difference in the world when you're at, at the matches. Totally. It's a totally different kind of heat today. And it has to be. I mean, you're not going to have people, you know, going nuts, hating the heels and loving the baby faces because the Internet happened. We just have access to all this information and it's different. And I, I don't resent the, you know, this is awesome chance or fight forever chance. I mean, it's just not going to be 1981 again ever. No. And, you know, it, it's that's not a bad thing. I mean. Look at we're on your show right now talking about the ins and outs of pro wrestling. I mean, back then you always kind of looked at it like you were a smart fan and where I wasn't really a smart fan. I saw blading sometimes and I saw the missed punches, but they did just enough to keep you in. And, you know, here today we want to know the backgrounds to everybody that we want to know how wrestling progressed over the years and everything. You can't do that without breaking kayfabe. So, oh, that's a nod to Barry and um, everybody over there. So the breaking kayfabe part. Uh, my friends, Barry and Jeff, I have to have them back on the show uh, again in the near future. They're great guests. And they have their, their own great podcast here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Uh, okay. WWF heavyweight title match. Bob Backlund defeats George Steele in 13 minutes. George Steele, and it's nothing personal, I know he was a good guy, was one of my least favorite wrestlers of all time. I was totally embarrassed by the gimmick. By this point, though, I was not totally sick of him. Steele came back uh, to the WWF in 1977. He left again in 1978, and he didn't come back again until 1981. So I'm, I'm seeing that as being reasonable. Okay. And then when he came back in 1983, I went ballistic. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to go to the Boston Garden and see a Bob Backlund versus George Steele main event, <laughs> which I did. But by this point, I wasn't totally sick of Steele like I, I eventually would be. I never got it. Even when they turned him into the the buffoon with 
uh, Albano doing the brain stuff, and he had the mind doll. And, you know, he was even part of the whole uh, Steamboat and Macho Man match at WrestleMania three. I never got it. And even when I would see the old tapes, him wrestling Bruno and everything, I'm like, no, it's just I just didn't buy into it. And I can't imagine, you know, Bob Backlund, you know, two and a half, three years into his title run, just wrestling George Steele for 13 minutes. Can't imagine that being super exciting. No, it, it it was not. I mean, I, I have seen this show, and you know, really there's no such thing as a good George Steele match. I will say this. I, I knew who he was even before I started watching wrestling. I mean, I just remember hearing the, the name George the Animal Steele. I'm like, wow, that's a pretty cool name. Like a linebacker mm-hmm. should have that name. Yeah. All Wasn't right. he the professor or something under a mask when he was starting? Yes, he was. He was still, yeah. yeah, he was still coaching football. And the legend has it that, um, you know, about once a year, some kid at the school he taught would, you know, show up with a wrestling magazine and Steele would just say, you know, would you scare the crap out of the kids? You better not show that to anybody. (laughs) Yeah, he he was pretty creepy looking, especially if you're a little kid, you're looking up at him and all the hair and the bald head and everything. But yeah, yeah, never, never a fan of Steele. I wasn't a huge fan of Backlund either, but. At the time, neither was I. I. I hated Bob Backlund in 1981, but I, over time, I have grown to appreciate him. Next up, the Moondogs, the tag team champions, defeat Dominic Danusti and S.D. Jones. Where do I begin? They are a little bit too long, the Moondogs, into their title reign to be in a match in a major market like Philadelphia where everyone knows the title is not changing hands. Danusti and Jones are not winning these tag team titles. No, and you know, you had I had heard before, and I think you explained how the WWF had always put like their championship matches in the middle of the card. Now, the backland match is towards the end of the card, but it is kind of odd that you would have your champion, your world champion, wrestle single, and then you would throw the moon dogs in for basically a job, a job match. Yeah, you know, you would go to your IC title match. Maybe we're not in correct order, but I'm pretty sure we are. This this looks right to me. Yeah, yeah. You you knew going in at Danucci and SD Jones were not walking out with the belts. Now, kind of knew. Someone in the WWF, whoever was running this thing in 1981, needs to explain to me how George the Animal Steel and the Moon Dogs are in the same promotion at the same time. <laughs> and what is this? I mean, you know, two of the most embarrassing acts out there i remember being you know 16 years old 15 years old whatever and these guys would be on tv i'd be like oh my god please don't have you know my friends from school or my girlfriend or whoever watching this because i will literally die of embarrassment (laughs) you know it's funny as wrestling fans we were like this is terrible but when you talk to non-wrestling fans like my mom Uh she'll bring up somebody like the guys that would carry around the bones and they had the wild hair. You know what I mean? We as wrestling fans were like, oh, my God, this is terrible. But like people who weren't fans, that's the stuff they kind of remember. And you're like, oh, you can't remember. That's all you remember from wrestling. That's pretty sad. Because <laughs> it stands out so much. I mean, the, the legend of the Moondogs, Randy Colley shows up as Moondog, Ho- no, Ripper Hawkins. Then he comes back and the next week or two weeks later, he's Moondog Hawkins. and He's dressed reasonably normal. <laughs> And then a couple of weeks later, he is now Rex the Moondog, and he's got another Moondog with him, 
and they crawl around and they have bones and I, gee, what happened to this Ripper Hawkins guy in like four or five weeks? So who would have, I see, I never understood. I know that everybody, when they talk about bookers, they talk about other territories. And, you know, when they talk about the WWWF and the WWF, they always talk about, you know, Vince putting things together and Pat Patterson being, you know, like the guy who would come up with matches and finishes. Did the WWF have a booker per se at this time? Did I lose you? No, dude, they did not oh, have sorry. a booker per se like other territories did. I mean, Patterson put together the finishes. I think Vince Sr. was the de facto booker, but he would get all kinds of input from what I understand from like Monsoon, Patterson, of course, uh, uh, what's his name, Skoland, um, perhaps mm-hmm. indeed even Vince Jr. himself. But I guess, yeah, yeah. he's the de facto booker. I got you. He was just putting the, the matches together and whatever would get hot, they would run with it. Because, I mean, it's kind of, you know, you would think about Slaughter and the Patterson thing. I mean, that was so hot. And you would think, I wonder who came up with that. It could have been Patterson himself who pitched at the Vince Sr. and Vince went with it. My money is on Patterson putting it together himself because I think, you know, he saw what a great worker Slaughter was. Patterson was still a great worker, even though I, I think he was in his mid-40s by this point. And just coming mm-hmm. up with the angle where, you know, Slaughter is harassing the TV announcer, the wrestler turned TV announcer, Pat Patterson. And mm-hmm. every week that thing got hotter and hotter. And finally, out yeah. of nowhere, Slaughter slaps Patterson in the mouth. And they're in the ring doing the the Cobra Clutch Challenge. It was, you know, I figured I always thought they should have waited a week and and let the anticipation build up. But they didn't. And it was one of the greatest angles and feuds of all time. Yeah. And it's crazy to think that Slaughter would come back later and kind of follow up the alley fight with what was the boot camp match with uh, the Iron Sheik. Is that what it was called? The boot camp? Yeah. Yeah. It was called Bloody bloody garden match that just had everybody on their on their feet the boston garden had the same version of the match and i was lucky enough to have seen it yeah slaughter when he came back in 83 i mean he had really been established as a star and you know he had the feud with backland and then he kind of puttered out and then babyface turned and it was such a natural thing the fans wanted to cheer for him yeah there's always talk that you know what would they have done if, you know, they decided to do something a little different than Hulk Hogan? But I'm not sure Slaughter could have carried it off the word that Hogan did going national. But, man, Slaughter was hot there for a while. And, again, coming off of the, the Steamboat and Youngblood angle with Pernoodle and then coming to the WWF and having the thing with the Iron Sheik. I mean, he was, he was great in the ring. And then for him to come back even later with the Iraqi thing, that was a little, eh. But uh. I like I like Slaughter a lot. I, I mean, we've talked about this, this before. I mean, you know, they, we had some shocking WWF champions in the 90s. And if someone had told me in 1989 that two years later, Sergeant Slaughter would be WWF champion, I, I would have laughed. I would have just laughed at them. But then they might have outdone themselves by putting the title back on Bob Backlund. Exactly. Yeah, well, and they did that later, you know. <laughs> anyway. SD, I don't I don't mean to cut you, but SD Jones. Yes. Did he, was he ever anything more than a mid card guy in the WWF? No. He was always, you know, an undercard guy right around the level of Baron McKelsa Cluna, Johnny Rods, you know, uh, maybe a couple of steps below Steve Travis. When he first came back in early nineteen eighty one, 
it looked like he was going to get a little bit of a push. I mean, you know, the fans liked him. He did. He did goofy but effective interviews, which you know he uh-huh. never got an interview back before he came back in 81. And it looked like something might happen towards the end of 81. He was teaming with Tony Atlas. And I'm like, you know what? These guys might beat Mr. Saito and, and Mr. Fuji. Uh, you know, it, that was a typical WWF tag team. You know, a, a top guy yeah. like Rocky Johnson and kind of a lower guy like, you know, SD Jones. And that that never happened. Yeah. That's when they went, I guess, what they went with, Rocky and Tony Atlas. Uh, that was a couple of years later. A couple years later. Yeah. yeah. All right. WWF Intercontinental title match. Don Morocco defeats Pedro Morales in 15 minutes and 21 seconds for the Intercontinental Championship. I have a lot to say about this. There's talk in wrestling that, you know, oh, this guy doesn't need a title or the title makes the wrestler or the wrestler makes the title. This was a very rare case where both the wrestler and the championship, in my opinion, was elevated by Morocco winning it. He was a, a young, energetic star. Yes, he was a bad guy, but he had a, a certain look to him. He was one of Backlund's top contenders. And right now, this night, okay, Saturday, June 20th, 1981, Magnificent Morocco went from a guy who yeah, he was okay in Florida. He was okay in the AWA. As of right now, he's a star. Yeah, he, you know, you figure he came to the WWF in February. Uh, he's got the Grand Wizard as his manager. He he just had that look about him. And he was so arrogant and could draw heat. And then you put him in there against Morales, who is like the the local Puerto Rican god and everything. And then for him to beat him in less than 20 minutes... Pretty impressive. You know, I mean, Pedro, you got to figure at that point, the IC title was only about, what, like two years old. You had had Patterson win it in Rio de Janeiro and then, or wink, wink. And then you had Patera and then Pedro. And then you had somebody as magnificent as Morocco coming in and and taking the belt. And I always liked Morocco, even when he was a heel. I thought he was just, he was great when he hit his stride in 81. I agree with you. And since Patterson, well, well, DiBiase introduced the title to the WWF, he just came in with the North American title. Then Patterson beat DiBiase for this new title we didn't know any anything about. And then Patterson, you know, makes up the story about the Rio de Janeiro tournament, which in reality, right. they were just changing the name of the title. Right. And, and now we finally have a guy, an outsider Patera was already well known in the WWF. Morales was. Now we have this outsider kind of guy winning the championship. Mm-hmm. And and to me, that it, it cemented the title status, in my opinion, as a, a genuinely top title in wrestling. Like, okay, you've got the NWA championship, clearly number one, WWF number two, AWA number three, and now this title is in the conversation with the, the mid-Atlantic U.S. title, the North American title in, in Mid-South, et cetera. Like, you know, who's number four? Yeah, exactly. And you got to figure, he beat Pedro. You know, Pedro was, you know, world champion. He had just come back in 1980. He won the tag belts with Backlund at the Shea Stadium show under San Matino and Zabisco. You know, they he wins the IC championship. He wins it, and then... Less than five months after coming to the promotion, Morocco beats him for the belt. And, you know, you're right. I mean, it just 
you had it on Pedro, but then, like you said, when Morocco won, it was like, boom, yeah. It probably even shot over top of the, the U.S. title and maybe went in at number four behind the three major championships. But yeah, Morocco was just so dynamic. He, he was just, you know, and you think about what he would do a couple years because he would end up losing it to Pedro and then winning it back from Pedro. And then, you know, had the, the run with Jimmy Snuka in 83 and everything. But yeah, Morocco was just, he was, he was great back then. This was the launch of something great. I mean, he wins the championship. He has the series against Bob Backlund in every major city. They go mm-hmm. 60 minutes in New York, Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and Boston. Yeah. They mm-hmm. then, you know, Morocco then loses the title to Pedro, leaves the territory, comes back less than a year later after I don't know what happened, but, you know, it looked like he walked out of Georgia. And, you know, yeah. comes back in 83, has the, another series against Backlund, or regains the Intercontinental Championship first. Then you have the legendary series with Snuka, and then mm-hmm. he leaves for a while, comes back, and goes around the Northeast Horn against Hulk Hogan to keep everyone distracted with something else before the first WrestleMania. Yeah, yeah. And even when he was put with Fuji, you know what I mean? And he got a little bit comical, more comical down the road, and... You know, then they turned him face around, what, 87, and he's in yep. the Fiverr series on, I think, on Hogan's team and everything. You know, I always just was a fan of him. I liked him more as a heel, you know, with the thumb and everything. But, yeah, he was he was like a breath of fresh air at that point. You've got Backlund on top, who's like, uh, you know, milk toast and the All-American boy. And then all of a sudden, you've got this guy who's jacked, tan, arrogant. He's got the Grand Wizard with him. He's kind of wild looking. Boom knocks out Morales, and now all of a sudden, it's the most exciting championship in the promotion. It very well may have been, because back when you kind of knew he was keeping the championship, you know, every time out, until the one time he didn't. The Intercontinental Championship changed hands a lot more frequently, and, you know, that kind of made things more interesting, in my opinion. Yeah, because it would bounce between Morocco and Pedro, and then um, you would have, like, Valentine and Santana bounced back and forth a little bit there. And then, of course, you had Savage beat, you know, Santana. So, yeah, I mean, the IC title was always the one that, you know, like you said, it was almost like the world championships and the WWF were kind of established. You kind of knew Hogan really wasn't going to lose on a Tuesday night somewhere. But, who you know, all of a sudden you have like for us here in Baltimore, you have Santana beating Valentine in a cage. You know, in 1984, just out of nowhere. You now, were you know, there for that? I actually was not. My wife was, but I wasn't. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, he was a huge Santana fan. Now, I had said earlier about Kurt Henning, okay? Mm-hmm. Kurt Henning was in the first match on this card. The IC title changed. It's in the Spectrum in Philly. The next time the IC title would change hands in Philadelphia would be in the Spectrum, SummerSlam. 1990, Kurt Henning losing to Kerry Von Erich. I never thought of that, but that's that's definitely true. Yep, 8-27-1990, Von Erich would beat Henning at SummerSlam at the Spectrum. So it's pretty wild that Henning is on the card when Morocco takes it from Pedro, and then nine years down the road, he's passing it over to Kerry Von Erich. Yeah, supposedly Henning and Von Erich did not get along at all. Just a little sidebar on that. 
Kenning really? was oh, oh yeah, Kenning was quite the ribber and he took aim at Kerry Von Erich. Oh God, did he mess with him about his foot? I can imagine. Oh, there's no question in my mind. <laughs> Kurt was pretty merciless, as you know, we, we've uh, all heard. And like I said, he, for whatever reason, he took aim at Kerry Von Erich and just made his life miserable. But anyway, the next night, the Omni in Atlanta, Sunday, June 21st, 1981. We kick off with kind of an odd tag team, Terry Gordy and Brian St. John defeating Robert Gibson and Ricky Gibson. I was not getting Georgia TV at this time. Michael Hayes came out maybe, um, no, you know what? It was right before the 4th of July. So Michael Hayes was gone from the promotion over something that Ole Anderson did. I don't know what Ole did. If someone can get on our Facebook group who knows this information, please let me know. But yeah, you've got Gordy, still a heel, without Michael Hayes, at least for right now, wrestling in kind of an odd match. But Brian St. John, I, I always thought he was good. I always thought he had some talent and potential, but he dropped out of the business. Yeah, it's weird that the, you know, Ricky and Robert Gibson, you know, in 81 were, was in Georgia doing jobs. I mean, I don't know. I mean, did they have a, a run with Oli there, or maybe this was just a, a pit stop somewhere or something. Cause I always heard the Gibsons were very good together. They were a really good tag team. And I don't remember, I haven't seen any footage of them as a team on Georgia TV. So I have the feeling this is, you know, they were regularly, I know they were regularly working Memphis. So yeah, this is probably just a one-off. Yeah. And as we get down the card, I'll bring it up when we get down to the next match, but it's interesting to see where Gordy would go in this opening match in June and where he would be in July. Excellent point. I, I, know, where, I know where you're going with this. Iron Mike Sharp defeats then known as Bruce Reed. It's Butch Reed who is just getting started. Let's talk a little bit about Iron Mike Sharp. He came to the WWF in 1983 with Lou Albano as his manager. I totally bought him as a top guy until they started jobbing him out. And he was always a good worker, and I remember him on Georgia TV. Any thoughts on Iron Mike Sharp? I only remember him as enhancement talent. I remember the the black armband and everything. I do not remember him ever winning a match. I only, <laughs> only knew him as the guy that when he was coming on Saturday morning, he was going to lose the match. Didn't even know he had a career before the WWF. I just thought that's all he did was there. No, I, I think Iron Mike was with the WWF from like the beginning of 83 right until like I, I think he dropped out in like 88 or 89. But yeah, he, he became enhancement talent uh, very quickly. He was he was upper level enhancement talent, but still. But I mean, whatever. It was it was a good job to have Butch Reed from the moment I saw this guy on Georgia TV in 1981. He looked like a star in the making and he definitely was. Oh, my God. He just, you know, he he was. And a few more years of seasoning and him in 84 in Mid-South and everything. I, I actually, I would have loved to have seen him. I know it's a few years more down the road, but I, it would have been awesome to see him with the IC Championship. You know, I know how that ended up happening, but it would have been cool to see Butch Reed, you know, carry the title and see how he would have done it. There is a story out there, for those unaware, that Butch Reed was scheduled to win the Intercontinental Championship from Ricky Steamboat, and there, he no-showed something or something like that, and Vince just made the abrupt decision 
to hand it over to the honky tonk man. I've actually never believed that story. I, I think Vince, you know, Vince is Vince. I mean, if he likes something, he's going to push it to the moon. He's going to force it down your throat and he's going to get it mm-hmm. over or die trying. And I, I just believe he, he was behind the honky tonk man the whole time. He just loved that gimmick. He tried it at first as a baby face. And then when it completely mm-hmm. flopped, he's like, all right, well, he'll be a heel, but I'm still using him. Yeah. And you know, the thing is, is that he struck gold with it. You know what I mean? Honky ended up holding the belt for a year and he hated his guts, but he was just gold. Everybody, he was the classic guy that you paid your ticket to watch him get his tail kicked. And he just kept stringing along and stringing along. And, you know, ultimately, if McMahon did say call an audible because Butch Reed didn't show up, it was a great audible. But I agree with you. I think it was all planning. I mean, maybe Vince does go out on a, a, a limb and try something, but his stuff seemed to be calculated. You know, he knew what he was doing with Hogan with the, the launch in 84 and everything and how he was lining things up in 83. Yeah, I would almost venture to say that Honky Talk Man was like, you know what, let's try it and see what happens. I think it's going to work. You and- see, I, I didn't like the Honky Talk Man. It, it wasn't heel heat either. It's just like, okay, this is, this is really silly. And now they're, they're, they, they've put an important title on this really silly guy, which is something they had never done before. I mean, and to me, it was like, okay, this is why I like wrestling. So I'll watch WWF wrestling because I like wrestling. But this is why I like the NWA so much more because they didn't have guys like this in higher positions on the card before someone says Mighty Wilbur. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't stand it either. I, I didn't like it. I, I, it was just... I didn't find anything entertaining about it, but I guess that maybe Vince did see something in it and maybe, you know, he saw, but going back to Mike Sharp, was he a descendant of, of the Sharp brothers, uh, Ben and Mike Sharp? Was he like Mike Sharp Jr. or something? I believe so. I believe he is the, the original Mike Sharp was his dad. Gotcha. All gotcha. right. Now, next up, Mike Graham defeats the French angel who is Frank Morell. I have never seen Mike Graham on Georgia television, but I'm, I'm guessing he just gets to make a shot at the Omni as a favor to Eddie Graham. That's what I thought when I looked at this and I saw what happens later in the card. I'm like, you know, they're working it out with the what what happens later in the card with the title change. And, you know, Eddie was like, hey, can Mike come up and wrestle? And they're probably, yeah, let, let him just re- wrestle the French angel. But yeah, it's definitely. <laughs> One of those things, it's like, hey, let my kid wrestle. Oh, okay, go ahead. No, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll bet that's exactly what happened. I got one thing about Mike Graham. In when I first started getting newsletters, like this is early, late '86, early '87, I was stunned to see that Mike Graham was being called overrated and only in the business because he's his father's. You know, he's the promoter's son. I always liked Mike Graham as a wrestler. I bought him as a top guy. In 1981, if they had put the NWA championship on Mike Graham, I would have bought it despite his lack of height. That's how good I thought he was at the time. Wow. I never really thought of Mike Graham in that way. I always thought, you know, as as just being, I don't know if I ever thought him any other way other than just being Mike Graham. You know, I don't think I've seen enough of his matches to really figure out what he could do or whatever. That's pretty interesting to think about him being able to have a run with the NWA championship. I mean, I, I know now that it wouldn't have worked because of his lack of size, but 
watching Florida TV, you know, Gordon Soley and Mike Graham himself had me convinced this is a world championship caliber wrestler. And, you know, he had this fantastic match against Dory Funk Jr. It was called an Australian rules match, which was kind of dumb. And it was wrestled in rounds, but it was one of the best matches I'd ever seen coming into it. Is this on YouTube? Because I'm writing this down right now. You know what? It very well might be on YouTube. There's a lot of Florida stuff floating around out there. So, yeah, check if you can find it. Australian rules. Dory Jr. against Mike Graham. If I can, I'll uh, share the link on the the Facebook page. Oh, thank you for that. Thank you. Next up, Jimmy Superfly Snooker, a relative newcomer to Georgia at this point, defeats a very young breaking into the business Terry Taylor. Taylor had been in and out of Georgia as like a lower guy since like 1980, maybe even 1979. A lot of potential, but Jimmy Snuka is at his peak here, in my opinion. He had just turned heel maybe a year and a half ago in the Mid-Atlantic Territory, which was an absolute shock to me. You know, this happy-go-lucky guy from Fiji is all of a sudden this like drooling, crazy bad guy. I I thought Snuka was great here. Now, was this after Snuka had won the uh, tag titles with Stevens? Yes, it was after. That was 1980. He had the tag team titles with Ray Stevens, which I always thought it was weird that Ray Stevens was the catalyst of Snuka's turn (laughs) in the WWF. It's like, hey, you guys know each other, right? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, Snuka was just, oh, you know, just again. Just going off looks, that body and everything. I actually preferred Snooker with boots, but you know he went with the barefoot thing. But Same yeah, here. Snooker was Snooker was just incredible, and you could see that there was something about him. And like I said, the next match is kind of funny because it ties into this Snooker match and it ties into the Terry Gordy match. But yeah, Snooker always looked like a star. It's a shame that he had his personal issues that he did and where his life went, but. He could have been so much bigger. I don't think he could have carried a world championship, but he could have been one of those guys that didn't need the belt, you know, like an Andre or something. Not a touring guy, but a main guy in a major promotion who you could push to the moon and everybody would buy, whether he would go face or go heel. I agree. And little did we know. Well, let me start with this. The first time I saw the Superfly Splash, when I started getting Georgia TV, I was blown away by it. Like, you know, they didn't have stuff like this in the WWF, at least not yet. And Snooker at this point was almost was close to 40 years old. It felt like he was just getting started, but that was his age. So it, it took him a while. Yeah. You know, when Snooker passed away, you and Brian did by far my favorite segment ever on the 605, where you talked about Snooker's career. And you guys had talked about Snooker you know, in Georgia and things, he was actually doing the splash in the middle of the match. You know, he hadn't kind of figured out where it was going to go, but everybody needs to go back. I, I can't remember what episode it was, but you, for about 45 minutes, you guys did an incredible job of being honest and basically laying it all out of line of what he did in the ring and outside the ring. You didn't forgive him for anything, but like I said, I'm, getting off track but yeah snooker was just incredible and then you know coming up in 83 with morocco and everything it was like wow he was just incredible looking and incredible when did snooker pass away like four or five years ago yeah i think so 
Okay, that that sounds about right. I, I remember. I, I don't think I've listened to that podcast since like when it first came out. I did listen to myself that one time, and I just remember. First of all, John, thank you for the kind words on the podcast. And if anyone would like to listen to it, I will post a link. The one thing I remember is Brian is desperately trying to move forward in the timeline. And I was a human parachute driving him back. No, wait, we got to talk about June 1983 first before we move to September. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, he passed away in January of 2017. Okay. Oh, wow. All right. So yeah, yeah I, it was, it was a great segment with you guys. Well, thank you. And one last thought. I mean, you know, I feel for the family of Nancy Argentino, but it's like by the time that they tried putting Snuka on trial. I'm like, th- this is not a winnable case. You're just burning money here. It happened 30 years ago. You know, the memories of the witnesses are going to be you know, just fried by a defense attorney. Anyway, moving yeah. forward, the team of Ted DiBiase and Steve O defeat the legendary tag team of Ole Anderson and Gene Anderson. Uh, Steve O, for whatever reason, Always got a nice push in Georgia. Uh, nothing against Steve-O. I thought he got a little bit too much of a push. He just, I just didn't think he was up there, you know, as a, a main eventer or a top guy. I think he was a, a step below that. Yeah, Ole must have seen something in him. He gave him some runs with the, the Georgia title, the singles title. And then this actually, here he is tag champions with DiBiase. So, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, maybe Ole just thought, he could find the diamond in the rough. But yeah, Steve-O, to me, didn't seem like he was ever going to be like a, a top-notch main event guy. No, he suffered from a, a legit staph infection in his wrist, which kind of, I don't want to say ruined his career, but definitely ruined this push. But like, you know, when he was the, the TV champion, tag team champion, I just, I just thought that was too ambitious a role for him. Let's talk about his tag team partner, Ted DiBiase. I mean, a long time ago, I heard from someone who would know that Ted DiBiase was being groomed to be the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion for a little bit. And Mm -hmm. this night might have been his night in a different universe, but it turns out that it was someone else's night. We'll get more into that later. But um, they wanted the uh, uh, Mushnick, the other NWA promoters, saw so much in Ted DiBiase. They wanted him to get exposure on the superstation and, you know, get a big push. And he never got a championship push. Like I thought, like I understand they wanted him to get, it was like, you know, they have him teaming up with, uh, what's his name? Stan Frazier against the Freebirds, And, you know, like I said, that's to me, that's not the kind of push a future NWA champion should be getting. No. And DiBiase was so good. You know, he was, he would find himself, you know, as a heel later on. And then, you know, of course, he would find his starring role as the Million Dollar Man. But a lot of people need to look past the gimmick with the Million Dollar Man and realize just how good DiBiase was in the ring. You know, the short stint that he had. I mean, it was very short, but I love the tag team of DiBiase and Steve Williams and Mid-South and then into the UWF. But yeah, back then there was, reading the magazines, they always kind of talked to him as possibly being a future world champion. And, you know, you kind of wonder what would have happened if they had decided to just, you know what I mean? They were put at at this point in 81, they were doing a lot of favors, you know, and bouncing the championship around. Who knows? DiBiase could have won from race at some point and 
see how he did in six months and maybe push it a little bit farther or something. But really talented. It was it was kind of a shame he never got a chance to really win a world championship. He was, my understanding, I mean, Ted DiBiase has said this himself. He was supposed to get a run with the NWA championship, and it fell through. And then he was supposed to get a run with the WWF championship, and it fell through. Randy, you know, the summer of 1988 was going to be Randy Savage chasing Ted DiBiase and not the other way around. And just everything got messed up because of something the Honky Tonk Man did. Yeah, and you know, that would have been totally against what the WWF had always done. You know, it was always the the baby face with the challengers coming in. If they had taken that approach of having Savage chase DiBiase, that would have been a whole new ballgame for the WWF because that would have been kind of what the NWA had always done or even with the way the Crockett was doing with everybody chasing Flair. Yeah, I mean, and I loved the Million Dollar Man gimmick. That might be my favorite Mm -hmm. gimmick of all time. You know, supposedly Pat Patterson told Ted DiBiase, you know, I can't tell you what the gimmick is, but I can tell you that Vince McMahon himself were a pro wrestler. This is the gimmick he would give himself. It's that good. (laughs) Yeah, and those vignettes that they did are just classic, just absolute classic. But. You know, looking at this match, what we were talking about, what I talked about earlier with Terry Gordy, you got Terry Gordy in the opening match. You had Snuka in the fourth match. DiBiase and Steve-O next against beating the Andersons, the Andersons putting them over. And then in the next month, Gordy and Snuka beat DiBiase and Steve-O for the championships. You know, they win the belt. What a a great tag team they were. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's incredible. When you look at, you know, Terry Gordy, was always the better worker, of course, with the Freebirds. But then you think about him tagging with Snuka. He ta- did he tag? Did he tag with DiBiase in um, Japan? Oh, uh, DiBiase. They may have Ted DiBiase's main tag team partner in Japan was Stan yeah. Hansen. Right, and then of course Gordy with Snuka, and then Gordy with Steve Williams down the road. But yeah, you're right. DiBiase was with Hansen. But then what's crazy is that Jimmy Snuka and Terry Gordy would then lose the belts to Michael Hayes and Otis Sistrunk. <laughs> Otis Sistrunk, a yes. former <laughs> Oakland Raiders defensive lineman who had no business in wrestling. Yeah, Jimmy Snuka and Terry Gordy have to put over Otis Sistrunk. That's pretty crazy right there. You know, Sistrunk, I mean, supposedly it was a, a, a disaster from the start, but in 1981, you're like, you know, wow, Otis Sistrunk is going to wrestle? He, you know, you know this guy's legit, and it didn't last at all because, you know, supposedly he didn't like the business, and the business did not like him. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever seen a Sistrunk match, and I don't think I'm ever really going to hunt one out to, to find out what he looked like in the ring, that is. Oh, I mean, you know, Michael Hayes and Otis Sistrunk. I mean, Hayes, I always thought, was a decent worker. But he's not the guy you want to have hiding Otis Sistrunk's weaknesses with. <laughs> exactly. He's not the worker. He's not the best worker to work with somebody who really can't work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was never a fan of Hayes. You know, whether he was face or heel, you know, sometimes you like the cool heels or whatever. Never a big fan of, of Hayes. I liked Gordy. Kind of found, you know, Hayes just kind of, I don't know, I didn't like the way he was in the ring. And then. Of course, later on with um, Jimmy Garvin, I was just like, oh, my God, they got to get rid of these guys. 
The Jimmy McGarvin, Michael Hayes, like of 89, 90, 91, was not the Michael Hayes of 1981. Michael Hayes, in my opinion, was one of, I mean, he was a, an absolute great. And right around this time, he came back right before the 4th of July. So he's back like on TV mm-hmm. within two or three weeks, less than that. And we named a show after it. The show is called Frumpy. And... <laughs> Michael Hayes does an interview where he goes back home to Pensacola, Florida to try to find himself. And this guy frumpy confronts him. Once again, I will try to find this on YouTube, but really I'm not saying Michael Hayes was one of the greatest interviews in history because I think, I think he was in the mid to early eighties. I'm saying that this might've been the greatest interview of all time. Like the single greatest pro wrestling interview. It was fantastic. All right. I'm writing that down now as we speak too. You got me looking up all kinds of stuff, John. I know. First, I put you on the first. I have you doing the work and getting on the show and doing research. And now I I won't leave you alone. (laughs) Let's talk about the Andersons legendary team in the Carolinas and Georgia. But by now, I mean, Gene Anderson, they tried making him a manager the year before in the mid-Atlantic territory because he just doesn't have the look or the skill to be in the ring. I mean, Gene Anderson looked like, you know, someone should have been chasing him around with a shovel okay. by 1981. <laughs> well, by the 70s, he kind of looked that way, too. But, yeah, I mean, now, again, timelines, you know, I'm a little fuzzy when it comes to the way these things are. Because now, was this after the time that he had gotten hit with the baseball bat and had the stroke or was the stroke after that? The stroke had to be before because he had that, uh, what is it, when he would like be on the interview and he would start shaking and his eyes would start going crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, this was probably just a matter of Ole wanting Gene to maybe have, you know, make some money. You know, Gene probably still wanted to wrestle. So he was like, well, let's, we'll put the champions over. You know what I mean? But you go back to the Andersons. I mean, they were such a staple in the Crockett territory. I mean, basically that entire, you know, tag team division when they were so big in the Crockett territories in the 60s and 70s, it was the Andersons, you know, before it was Ole, it was Gene and Lars, you know, that's that's who it was, right? Was it Lars and Gene and then Ole and Gene? I believe so, yeah. I mean, I've, I've been a proponent for getting Ole and Gene Anderson as a tag team into the Observer Hall of Fame. I think I think they deserve it. The Andersons are not in the Observer Hall of Fame? Another they are not. Now. That's just another reason for me not like Meltzer. Yeah, they should be in there. I mean, those guys were just incredible. I mean, they kept that territory on fire, you know, again, because of how big tag teams were before, you know, Valentine and Wahoo came in and kind of switched things with uh, singles. But, yeah, you go back to any of those matches. I mean, they, they created a lot of what heel tag team do with, you know, the Anderson where they would get the, uh, like, an arm and they'd work on it the whole match or a leg and work on the whole match. but. And they were tough, you know what I mean? Like you said, Gene later on looked like, you know, a walking corpse. But for the most part, you didn't mess with them. They would they would smack the crap out of you if you didn't take it seriously. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, I'm just so everyone knows, like, I mean, Meltzer doesn't decide who gets to the Hall of Fame. It's his, I know, I know. It's I'm... his board of people who you vote. And, you know, the Andersons just haven't gotten enough votes. I used to think they didn't belong in the Hall of Fame, but then... The Midnight Express got in, and a couple of other tag teams got in. Like, wait a minute, these teams are getting in. The Andersons should definitely get in. Rock and Rolls got in. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, right. Well, right now I'm writing down email Brian last to tell him to put the Andersons in the Observer Hall of Fame. There you go. <laughs> All right. Next match we have, and I saw some of the promos leading into this match. Blackjack Mulligan versus Bruiser Brody ended without a winner as a, in a no contest. Bruiser Brody was incredible in Georgia. Uh, I mean, I remember right before this match, leading up to this match, Brody has a squash match on WTBS and, you know, just destroys the jobber. Then he sees a wheelchair. I don't know where he got it by ringside. He puts the jobber in the wheelchair, brings him over to the podium with Gordon Soley and kicks the guy backwards out of the wheelchair. (laughs) WTBS deemed this too violent. They just like cut it right out. And you're like, oh my God, this Brody guy is a wild man. I didn't, you know, I actually didn't even know that he had a run in Georgia at that time. And was Blackjack Mulligan a, a, a mainstay in Georgia in the early 80s? No, he wasn't. He came in for a little while, but he was mostly a mid Atlantic wrestler. It was funny. They, they both came in, it looked like to me. And immediately started feuding. And these are two really big guys. So uh, to mm-hmm. me, I wanted to see this. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if any if any of this. Because Brody against Blackjack at that time had to have been incredible. That that had to have been. There was probably no wrist locks in those matches. With oh, no. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder if there was blood, too. Because I can imagine both of them bleeding, you know, two seconds into the match. Yeah, but I could, I could definitely been. see it. That had to have been an incredible night, because as you see this card moving on, it just builds, builds, builds until the payoff at the end. Totally. Yeah, because yeah, Blackjack against Brody, that had to have been amazing to see in person. As far as I know, Brody was in Georgia twice. He was in Georgia right around this time, and then he was in again like late 82, early 83. Nothing really much came of his appearances, but... Uh, I remember watching on TV and being like, you know, why isn't this guy making millions of dollars like in Madison Square Garden wrestling Bob Backlund? Because I, I had no idea he had, he was making more money in Japan. Yeah, yeah. And he was another one of those guys that was incredibly talented in the ring and just did what he wanted to do. If he didn't like where he was, he just went someplace else. And because of how good he was, people would pay him to leave a territory, you know, and the mainstay of over in Japan and then just picking and choosing where he wanted to work here. You know, they had talked about Brody supposedly, you know, going to the WWF and right before he died to wrestle Hogan. I'm not sure Brody would have been good in that position. I mean, not that he couldn't have pulled it off, but you know, he might not have liked that type of style that the WWF had, you know, he would could have, I could see him going in and, beating the crap out of Hogan, but it would have been interesting to see, but I'm not sure if it would have taken off the way people thought it would have taken off. Brody was friends with Dave Meltzer, and I'm sure Dave got this right from Brody that when the, you know, Brody was about making money and Mm -hmm. the WWF was the place where money was to be made. And supposedly when, when the time came, when Brody, you know, when the, the Japan gig dried up, he was going to be happy to go to the WWF and do whatever they wanted, uh, including oh, wow. losing to Hogan with a leg drop, clean one, two, three, and collect his wow. paycheck. Wow. I didn't know that. Well, yeah, money talks. And he, like you said, he was, he was all about making the money. Now, Blackjack 
was he in the Mid-Atlantic at that time, or had he been wrestling in Florida? He had not yet started in Florida. He went okay. to Florida in 1983. Blackjack had an interesting time in the 80s. I know in early 1980, he suffered a heart attack. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, and that took him out of wrestling for a while. It might have been late, 80, late 79, early 80s, and he was out for a while. But then, you know, he would be in mid-Atlantic sporadically, and then something would happen, and he would leave, and he'd go to Florida and, you know, wrestle with Dusty. But And, you know, then he went to the, he came to the WWF a couple of times and left. I mean, remember Mulligan's Barbecue? No, was he that had a, like a he had a Piper's Pit segment. Oh my god! <laughs> and it was it was not good. Trust me when I say this. <laughs> I guess that's the reason why nobody remembers except you. <laughs> yeah, he he came to the WWF in like late '84, disappeared, and then he came back and and as one of the machines in '86. Then when that gimmick yeah. ran out, he was just Blackjack Mulligan for a while and wrestling and doing a Piper's Pit segment, and then once again he vanished. See, I don't remember the, the Blackjack's barbecue, but all I remember at that point was just some heavyset guy known as Blackjack Mode. You know, because <laughs> at that point, he was just, he was a big guy, you know, he put on a lot of weight. Yeah. And yeah, it was, yeah, he was there very shortly, but that's all I remember. I remember a picture, I think, where he's got like a red shirt on and he just looks extremely overweight. And then all of a sudden he was gone. But yeah, wow. I didn't. I got to search and see if I can find some of that. Let me write that down. Blackjack's barbecue. See if I can find that one. Believe it or not, I remember the red shirt. It was like this kind of worn out red that <laughs> yeah. had turned to pink shirt. Yeah. And then, then he had the SMU shirt. But anyway, another big <laughs> match. Ken Patera defeats Georgia heavyweight champion Tommy Rich and wins the title. This, You know what? I'm Facebook friends with Ken Patera, and maybe I should ask him this. But Patera came in, he was getting a gigantic push, obviously. He is now the top guy in Georgia Championship Wrestling, has the title. Looks like, you know, I had no idea Ken Patera was almost 40 at this point, but he looked like a guy who the next step is the NWA World Championship or the WWF Championship. And for those who don't know, Patera walked out of Georgia without ever dropping the title, and I for... 40 years now, I've wondered why. Like, that was very unusual back in the day. Yeah, when I was looking up, you know, I was doing a little bit of research on this, and I saw, you know, Patera had come out. He was IC champ in 80, comes into Georgia, defeats Rich, who, of course, the just lost the, the NWA championship. And then, it's, and then I saw that he had won the belt, and then he left Georgia. Because it shows that Rich had won the Georgia belt from the Masked Superstar because it had been vacated when Patera just up and left because he had a disagreement with Oli. I did not know he had a disagreement with Oli. Yeah, that's what well, that's what I found. I mean, I don't know, you know how reliable the Internet is. but That yeah, sounds right. That, yeah, he had had a disagreement because you got to figure that was a pretty that was a. He he was brought in off the IC run, given the championship, and then not that much longer he's gone, you know. And then, like I said, like I said, it you know Rich had beaten Mass Superstar. He was gone with the issue with Oli. But yeah, it would be interesting to find out from Patera exactly what happened, or see if he would talk about it. Uh, you know, get his side of the story. Now, 
Tommy Rich, Ken Patera, two guys that I absolutely buy as top superstars in the business. I mean, this could have been easily the main event at the Omni with Patera winning the title and then going on to create a, a memorable faction of Ken Patera, Jimmy Superfly Snuka, and Terry Gordy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would have been, it, yeah, that would have been incredible. I mean, Patera, you know, you, you would look at him as, you know, when early in his career and everything, but by this time, the blonde hair and the body and just the arrogance or whatever, yeah, that would have been an incredible, incredible group right there. He was, like I said, he was close to 40, but I bought him as being in his early 30s. This is back when we had no way of knowing how old the wrestlers were. Finally, main event, Dusty Rhodes defeats Harley Race for the NWA Championship. And I remember watching Florida Championship Wrestling and seeing that this had happened. And it looked like Dusty, well, he did get a real run with the NWA Championship. And I think that's a good thing. Someone on Twitter this week said that, oh, yeah, Dusty was best as the guy chasing the championship, not holding the championship. I think Dusty would have been a great long-term champion with the NWA title, you know, meaning long-term meaning about a year. I mean, he was the one of the greatest draws in wrestling. You know, you would have had to make some accommodations for having such a baby face like Dusty as champion. Like, you know, they had. Dusty and DiBiase wrestle a babyface match in Atlanta maybe a couple of months later, and babyface matches tend not to be very good. But, you know, spend a year having Dusty going around the horn, you know, facing the heels for the for the NWA championship and, you know, retaining it. I would have I would have liked to have seen that. Yeah, Dusty wouldn't have had to go out there and do 60 minute broadways. And it's not necessarily that he would have had to win one, two, three with every match. But yeah. It would have been interesting to see because all the NWA champions always kind of tiptoed the line between heel face type deal, you know, depending on the territories that they were in. But yeah, having a babyface champion as your NWA champion for six, eight, nine, ten months or whatever, it would have been interesting to see what Dusty could have done. Because Dusty, Dusty back then could work, you know. I mean, he wasn't, you know, Carl Gotch or anything, but you know, Dusty, he was charismatic. He could pull off a good match and. He bled, he would have you believe in every time that he was in a championship match that he was going to lose the belt and then end up winning it in the end. And then, you know, everybody would be cheering because the good guy won. Also, one of the greatest interviews of all time, especially right around here. I mean, Dusty was was red hot and I would have enjoyed seeing him, you know, defend the NWA title against, you know, Jimmy Snuka in Atlanta against uh, Ric Flair or Greg Valentine, I should say, in the Mid-Atlantic Territory. Uh he yeah. did defend against the assassin number one in Florida. So, I, you know, I don't know who the top guys like world class were in 81, but the whole thing I think would have been interesting, but they decided ultimately to go in a different direction with Ric Flair as the champion. Dusty winning the title though, and this time he won it for real. He he didn't hold it long, but he held it for more than a week. So I, I don't consider this really a quickie, but Dusty was different than any kind of nwa champion they'd ever had i mean you know we went from kaniski to dory jr to briefly with harley race to briscoe back to terry funk and then harley race again you know that was a a certain type of wrestler like you know typical black boots black trunks that was not dusty Rhodes. yeah no no knee pads you know just kind of um 
yeah, just go in and wrestle, get your tail kicked for an hour, and then, you know, on your back with the belt strapped over you because, you know, you beat him in 60 minutes. But, yeah, Dusty, just with the, yeah, I mean, it charisma just oozed off of Dusty. And, you know, you, you just saw, look at the three matches he had, you know, four years before with Graham at the Garden. You know what I mean? It was just, he was the baby face. He was going after the heel champion. He didn't win, but man, he just, the guy came from Florida where three years before he was a heel. Now all of a sudden from 74 to 77, he's a man attraction going into New York and setting the city on fire. So who's not to say that three years down the road, Dusty couldn't have had, like you said, a, a one-year run with the championship and then maybe drop it to Flair down the road i mean because you look at 1981 you know flair had said himself it got to the point with the championship that when he started doing favors you know what i mean like uh baba throwing some money at briscoe and race to win the titles in japan which was fine because he was part of the board but then you had rich in 81 then it gets back to race then race drops it to dusty basically as you know graham is fighting hard for him and dusty deserves it and then three months later he drops it to flair and then flair ends up keeping it for all of 82 um you know into 83 and then you just think about it it's like you went from rich who was at the peak of being one of the hottest baby faces in the country to in about two years kind of petering out with that really bloody feud with buzz sawyer to you know, a couple months after he loses the NW championship to Flair, picking it up and becoming like the king. You know what I mean? Like the greatest champion of all time. Just 81, it's weird, from Rich to Race to Dusty to Flair. And then all of a sudden, Flair just takes off and the belt is his for the rest of the 80s. Except for, you know, dropping it here and there. Right. No, I mean, I, w- I was thinking about that recently, that Flair, you know, dominated the 80s with that championship. And you mentioned, you know, Dusty, the other champions, like, you know, they, they didn't even have knee pads. I mean, Dusty's in the ring with cowboy boots. He's got those, those flamboyant robes. He's got, or he's got his cowboy outfits. He was like nothing they'd ever had before, which kind of opened the door a little bit, I think, to Ric Flair winning the title in September. Yeah. Yeah. And you got to figure, you know, one of the things when I saw this, I know that we were talking about Dusty beating race, but. I automatically thought of the fact that Dusty would then drop it to Flair in September. So I grabbed Flair's book because I remember Flair said that that kind of started the animosity between him and Dusty because Dusty didn't really want to lose the belt, but they decided they were going to go with Flair. And Flair said, you know, he won the championship. They were in Kansas City. You know, Dusty wasn't big there. Flair, really nobody knew him in Kansas City. He said he wasn't a great match. He felt weird backstage with the title. You didn't celebrate. You didn't tell anybody. So him and Crockett went out and had a quiet dinner. But he said you could feel the weight of being the championship as soon as you won the belt. And then he mentions later in his book when he would end up going to Florida. And, you know, I think Dusty might have been the booker or something or somebody was the booker. And they quit and they had to scuttlebutt to find, you know, people to wrestle and, you know, for flair. But yeah, it's just interesting rich to race the dusty to flare and then it's magic you know what i mean of course he would drop it to race in 83 which led to starcade which is funny because starcade was dusty's idea 
And then he would drop it to what Von Erich in 84. And then he would keep it for all of 85 and lose it to Dusty in 86. But yeah, it's just 81 basically just launched Flair. And it kind of started with Rich to race the Dusty to Flair. I mean, I can come right out and say that both Ted DiBiase and Ric Flair felt like uh, Dusty Rhodes went out of his way to sandbag their chances of being NWA champion. You got to remember, you know, this time, 40 years ago, 1981, I mean, you know, Ric Flair, could he be world, you know, the way I was looking at it, like, did I see him as a future NWA world's heavyweight champion? Uh, Possibly, but I saw a lot of guys as potential future NWA champions. But anyway, I mean, it was it was a, a historic two nights. Uh, obviously, the Atlanta thing is a much bigger deal. It really felt like the end for Harley race. Harley had been mm-hmm. NWA champion for you know the better part of four years. Yeah, they did some quickies with him. Mm-hmm. I personally was a little bit tired. I respect the hell out of Harley race. I think he's an all time great. But after four years, it felt like a really long time. And it kind of felt like, okay, you know, what's next for Harley Race? And, you know, is, is he going to retire soon? And little did we know that about two years later, you know, Harley Race would have another substantial run as NWA champion. Yeah, I was about to say, you got to figure he comes back in 83 with those great take the money promos that he did. And, you know, Race was, it's funny, you know, they talk about Race being such this, this tough, tough guy. But he did seem like one of those guys who was like flair. You know what I mean? Do what's best for the business. If he had to drop it to Rich for a week, he'd drop it to Rich for a week. If he had to drop it to Dusty for a week, he dropped it to Dusty for a week. If he wanted to do business with Baba, he would do business with Baba. You know what I mean? He was the guy who was there to carry it for that time. And, you know, race, he doesn't get talked about as being one of the greatest. But, you know, there are times that I see some of Flair's matches in the 80s. And there was stuff that he picked up from race, you know, and he had such a close relationship with Harley. But yeah, race was, like you said, by 81 or so, you're like, okay, you'd been in the title scene for about 10 years and everything. And then all of a sudden he comes back with that perm and those sideburns. And you're like, okay, he's a badass. (laughs) I remember like, you know, Harley going from the bleach blonde guy to like that, Mm -hmm. that, shoe leather uh, shoe could be shoe polish in his hair look and the sideburns i was like wow this guy is completely transformed like i said just a great two nights of wrestling i'm glad we got to talk about it john thank you for being the guest we had a really good time and we'll be doing this again soon awesome thank you so much i appreciate you having me it's it's nice to talk wrestling other than you know stuff from baltimore and stuff from like my childhood you know i was telling my wife i said to her i said I got to start cramming for this because yesterday I thought it was Tuesday. And I said, you know, what are you doing on Friday? She goes, well, that's tomorrow. And I'm like, okay. And then <laughs> I started looking through and it's like, it's funny. It's like when you start looking at a guy in a certain area and you're like, well, wait a minute, where was he in 81? And then, you know, you start grabbing out your, because what I did was I grabbed the flare book. Like I remembered with that. And then I grabbed the incredible Tim Hornbaker NWA untold story of the monopoly uh-huh. uh, that strangle person that's an incredible book and believe it or not i grabbed an old pwi almanac so that i could get the dates on some of the championship changes but it's like you start looking through here and you're like oh, you know what i kind of remember that or i kind of remember this but i just love it i love talking old wrestling it's just so much fun and it's nice to reminisce and it's nice to go back and just 
talk about these guys that just were larger than life for us back then. And like I said, I wasn't a smart fan until probably my, like I said, you could see through some of the stuff, but I still let myself believe, but you know, it, it's cool learning about the history of it. Now it's, I just love it. I, that's why I love your show and Brian's and, and Corny's and, you know, Barry and Jeff and everything. And I know that they don't go straight wrestling all the time, but it's just so much fun. You know, it, it's something it's wrestling's almost like one of those things that, for me, it's like baseball. When baseball gets into you, you love baseball. You'll always love baseball. And I think with pro wrestling, especially with us from where we came from, it just sticks with you. Yeah, stick to wrestling. Huh? That, wasn't <laughs> not, that wasn't intentional. But. That's okay. No, you know, and not to get off on a side thing, supposedly wrestling, well, a lot of people, they start watching it, or this was the way it was back in the day. Typically, you had a fan you were a fan for three years. The typical person was a fan for three years. And then after three years, they've, they've seen it all and they go move on to something else. But now, no, the guys like John fell and I fell in love with it and stuck with it. And I, I still watch the current product, but like I said, once again, I want to thank John fell for taking the time. And we'll do this again. I want to thank our producer. Once again, Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day.